Let me invite you to uh, turn once again to the Old Testament book of Micah, this time Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 this morning. Uh, If you've been with us, and you'll remember that uh, Micah chapters 1 through 3 have been pretty bleak, and um, let me stop there because I just remembered something I'm supposed to announce. Aaron, you gave me the cue. Um, the nursery is open. Uh, Kelsey's back there this morning, so parents, if, if you need, um, the nursery's available, and there are folks back there. But uh, Micah, Micah chapter 4 stands uh, in a fair bit of contrast to Micah chapters 1 through 3. Uh, you'll remember that uh, Micah was given a message of judgment against the, the covenant people of God on account of their idolatry and covetousness. Uh, the people were guilty of uh, injustice and oppression. Those are really things that marked the people of God at, at that time. And so uh, judgment was coming in the form of, of exile. But now in chapter 4, things take really a breathtaking turn. Micah shifts from this word of judgment on Jerusalem, where Jerusalem will be reduced to a heap of rubble, to envisioning Mount Zion as the highest mountain in all of the world, where the temple of God becomes the center of teaching for the nations. And so we're going to try to understand this incredible vision by uh, taking a look at it under four headings. We're really going to focus on the first half of chapter 4, but I want us to read it in its entirety because we're going to bring in some other things that Micah says later. And uh, Lord willing, at some point, we'll come back and consider some of the other themes later on here in chapter 4. But let me give you the four headings up front so you can have those handles, and then we'll uh, read and then unpack these four headings. First of all, it's a latter days vision. Micah says that the things he is describing will take place in the latter days, and we need to try to understand when that is. Secondly, it's an international vision. Micah sees the peoples of the earth, the nations of the world, flocking to Jerusalem and ascending the mountain of the Lord to listen to the teaching of God. Third, it's a transformational vision. Micah sees people who are profoundly changed by the knowledge of the God of Jacob. And then fourthly, we'll see that it's, it's a God-exalting vision. God preserves and saves a helpless and weak people. We're going to see that as we take a look at Micah chapter 4 now. So let's go ahead and read God's word, beginning in Micah 4 verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, 
and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall, shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of, of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Well, we've got a lot to try to cover this morning, so let's jump right in and consider the fact that Micah's vision is a latter days vision. You see that in in verse 1, don't you? Micah Micah says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So here's the the million dollar question. When are the latter days? Now clearly, everyone is agreed, Micah was talking about a future event from from his own time. But do, do these days refer, as some believe, to some future golden age? Some millennial period when, you know, Christ will rule from Jerusalem and the nations will physically come to Jerusalem in the Middle East and and worship the Lord there? Or as some others suggest, does this refer to something that won't really take place until after the consummation, until after Jesus returns? They'll Look at verses like 3 and 4 and the things that are described there and say, look, these are things that will only happen when the world is made new. I want to I suggest that neither of those options of explaining the latter days, a future golden age or after the consummation, neither of those options really do justice to what the Bible means by latter days. It might come as a surprise to, to some people uh, to, to learn, to find that despite, you know, uh, frankly, all of the end times mumbo-jumbo that is on too many 
Christian bookshelves today that um, the New Testament writers use the language of last days, and it doesn't refer to any of those things. It doesn't refer to a future golden age that is yet to come, uh, a future millennial reign of Jesus in earthly Jerusalem, nor does it refer to what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. The New Testament authors employ this Old Testament language of latter days or last days to talk about the entire period between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, before, between his first coming and his second coming in judgment and salvation at the end of the age. Now, we don't have time to do a, a, a full survey of this, but let me, just, let me just give you a couple of examples from the New Testament that I think make this pretty clear and to give us a flavor of this, okay? Remember Peter's sermon on uh, the day of Pentecost recorded for us in, in Acts chapter 2 when the risen Christ is, is giving the Holy Spirit to the, the church, pouring out the Spirit on, on all flesh. And remember when Peter stood up to preach on that day, what did he say? He, he was explaining what was taking place and he said it in these words, this is what was promised by the prophet Joel that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now, something really interesting about that quotation is that Peter is not just quoting Joel. Joel actually doesn't use the language of last days or latter days. What, what, what Peter does is he takes the expression of latter days from Micah and he combines it with Joel's prophecy and says, what Joel saw, what Micah said about the latter days, is now taking place as I preach, as the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Since Christ was raised, we are living in the latter days. Another place we could go um, to see this is the opening words of the book of Hebrews. If you take a look at Hebrews chapter one and uh, the first couple of verses at least, you'll see right away that the author of Hebrews believed that he was living in the last days. And he, he says, in, uh, in the past, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all Things. And so the climactic word of God uh, given to the world was spoken by God the Son, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews is cluing us in on the fact that his first coming marks the beginning of what the New Testament calls the last days. The last days then have to do with what we might call the, the age of the church. The whole period between the first and final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And its usage here is, is therefore not about just, you know, a few years before the very end or uh, of even a thousand years before the end. But again, the whole period, the whole age between the first and final coming of Jesus. And that means, you know, friends, that we are living in the latter days, the times about which Micah was prophesying. 
And so that means to interpret Micah's prophecy correctly, we have to understand that he is speaking about the latter days uh, as beginning with the, 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 the advent of Jesus and, and Pentecost continuing until the return of Christ and fully being fully realized when he appears at the consummation of all things. Now, if, if that's true, uh, well, then let me say, you know, um, forget your Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. Um, all of us are probably familiar with the Left Behind series. If I can plead with you, leave that behind. <laughs> Please set it aside. It's, it's nonsense. It really is. It's, it's nonsense. Um, Micah is talking here about the days in which we live as we anticipate Christ's return. And that then has huge implications for how we read and apply these words. Okay? These words speak to God's people, to us not just about a time longed for, uh, not just some distant golden age that is yet to come, These are words to live by right now that give us a perspective of what God is doing in the world and what he will yet one day do. And perhaps we we could also say in, in our own historical context and the place in which we find ourselves, this is a word of tremendous encouragement for the church of Jesus Christ where we might be tempted to think that, you know, the purposes of God uh, are, are being hindered or the church is somehow waning. Perhaps there are ebbs and flows in history where the church in one part of the world is at one time increasing and another time decreasing. But rest assured, dear friends, what Micah is describing is happening right now. And we ought to take great encouragement from that. So just to lay the groundwork, we need to see, first of all, it's a latter days vision. And now secondly, let's go to the second thing here. Secondly, it's an international vision. Micah sees Mount Zion, Jerusalem, exalted, raised up above all the other mountains of the earth. Have a look at verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, We need to backtrack for a second. Go back to chapter 3 and remember what's going on back in chapter 3. In his disciplining judgment, God has said to his covenant people, you have built a city for yourselves. You've built a place to live for yourselves, but you have built it with blood and injustice. Blood and injustice. You have... You have uh, priests who teach for a price, judges who give a judgment for a bribe. You have prophets who practice divination, and the rich and the wealthy oppress the poor, driven by their covetous greed. And all the while, this is characterizing the people of God at this time, the people are saying to themselves, is not God on our side? Is not God within our midst? Surely no evil will come upon us. Surely nothing bad will ever happen to us. After all, we're the sons of Abraham. And God has said to them as a result, Zion is going to be leveled like a field. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be reduced to a heap of ruins. 
And so the people have built Jerusalem with, with wicked deeds and falsehood and idolatry. Well, so what's God going to do? Well, such a place could never be to God's glory and for the good of God's people. And so God's going to tear it all down. He's going to destroy it in judgment. But he's not going to, he's not going to tear it all down and scrap his plans and turn to, you know, plan B. In the latter days, God is going to build the whole thing up again, and it's going to be a place that glorifies him and is good for his people. And so do you see the the dynamic here between chapters 3 and 4? In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains. Okay, so... So what is Micah describing then when when he talks about the mountain of the Lord being raised up? What will God do in in the last days? Remember, days happening right now after the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. What is God up to in this figure of a mountain raised up over all the rest? Micah explains it to us. One of the things he is doing is is gathering people from all over the world to himself. So you see the emphasis here. It's a, it's a global thing that Micah is envisioning. It's an international thing. Mount Zion is established and peoples flow to it and many nations come and they say to one another, come, let us go up the mountain of the world. So Micah is envisioning a worldwide phenomenon. Now, it'll help us to appreciate what Micah's getting at here if we think about the fact that in the ancient Near East, mountains and hilltops were, were places of worship. They, they symbolized, not just in Israel, but even in, in the surrounding nations, they symbolized uh, uh, the place where God, their God dwelled. And where the people could go to meet with their God. It was also representative of that particular deity's authority over the surrounding uh, territory. And so all those nations, this is what Micah's envisioning, all those nations who have their own high places, their own gods to worship on the hills, will abandon those gods and people from all over the earth will descend down from their little mounds and begin to make a pilgrim journey to Mount Zion to ascend the hill of the Lord to serve the God of Jacob, to go there and worship him. And so Micah sees people from from all over the earth saying, I'm going to forsake the gods I've got. And look, we've all got gods I'm going to forsake the gods I've got. I'm going to leave those gods behind, which are nothing compared to the God of Israel. And I'm going to leave behind that, that company that worships those gods because I have seen that they worship nothing more than vain idols. Because my eyes have been opened to see the, the God that is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made heaven and earth. The God who creates 
and sustains and redeems and judges and makes right. I've met the God who I ought to worship and serve. And that God is irresistible. So I'm forsaking these other gods, whatever they may be, whether they be, you know, idols of a statue or a shrine or the the idols of our more modern material culture. I'm going to leave them all behind and go to this mountain to worship the Lord. That's what Micah sees. He is foreseeing an international global phenomenon. And we need to take just a minute to reflect on this a little bit more because there are at least two things that are significant about the mentioning of nations here. First of all, in Micah's immediate context, this would have been a mind-boggling, astonishing claim because who are the nations in Micah's day? They were most often God's instrument of rebuke on his wayward people. In other words, the nations were not, you know, friendly neighbors or far off distant peoples that you learned about in geography class. The nations surrounding Israel were enemies, right? The nations are those people who, as long as Israel could remember, wanted to do them in, do away with them. They were trying to wipe them out. So you think about the Egyptians, the Assyrians, before them the Syrians, after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, and on and on we could go. Eventually they're taken over by others, but all of them have been against God's people. And so the nations are the opposition. The nations are the people who are out to get you. And God says, I will be so exalted that your enemies in turning to me will become your friends. Your enemies will join you and they will start saying to one another, come on, let's go together. Let's ascend the mountain and go to the house of the God of Jacob to sit at his feet. I think nations also has a broader significance when we think about what Micah is saying in the broader context of God's covenant promises. When God says many nations will come to the mountain of the Lord, Micah is is connecting what God promised all the way back to to Abraham in the book of Genesis. The covenant promise given to Abraham is that he would be the father of many nations And that through his seed, through his offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. And that promise, it was repeated to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. As if to say, what I'm giving to you is not just for you. It's for the peoples of the earth. Through you and your seed, your offspring, God will bring salvation to the nations of the world, which in Abraham's context, you remember, comes right on the tails of the the peoples of the earth being scattered in judgment at the Tower of Babel. One day, Micah is seeing God bringing the people back together once again. And so all of those people who, you know, tried to build their own mountain to, to reach God and really to become God, will now come to the mountain the Lord builds, and there they will find God. 
They will come now to the God of Jacob and find him there. So Micah is seeing this foundational programmatic promise given to Abraham being realized. He's seeing it coming true. And it's a vision being realized, Micah said, in the latter days, which we need to remember means now, (laughs) in the church, in the church of Jesus Christ. So to see this, we have to realize, to read this text faithfully, that Micah is using the signs and symbols of the old covenant period, signs like Jerusalem, to depict spiritual realities which are more fully revealed in the new covenant age. So in the the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the mountain on which God dwelled within uh, within his temple among his people. It was where God's people went, ascending the hill of the Lord to meet with God. And so Micah is describing the nations flowing to Jerusalem is symbolic of what would, would come. Because let's, let's bring into this, uh, into the conversation here, what Jesus would say to the Samaritan woman, for example, in, in John chapter 4, that a day is coming when, you know, which mountain you worship on is neither here nor there, because the signs are going to be done away with. At the coming of Jesus, the earthly material symbols pass away. So while the return from Exile that Micah speaks of here in the second half of chapter 4 and as we go on in the Old Testament, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the reconstruction of the temple are all part of the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy here. Micah is not ultimately describing a physical pilgrimage people would make to the earthly city of Jerusalem. After all, from the very beginning of Old Testament worship, it was full of signs and symbols that were intended to point to heavenly spiritual realities. Doesn't the book of Hebrews tell us that the the tabernacle in the Old Testament was patterned after the reality of the heavenly sanctuary? And so through the things that could be seen and touched, the people participated in the heavenly reality. And so the mountain and temple in Micah symbolize heaven and the pilgrimage of the nations to Jerusalem symbolize their coming to Mount Zion, the heavenly reality, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you're probably on to where we're going with this. If you were paying attention when we when we read the assurance of pardon this morning, because what does the New Testament say about the church's gathering today? Or let's ask a different question. Where do we really come when we come to worship by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does Hebrews say to us? Listen to Hebrews 12, 22. Talking about worship, it says that as the church gathers, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See what it's saying? Today, Christ's church, all over the world, 
made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As the gospel goes forth all over the world, as they come, they assemble where? At Mount Zion. In the heavenly Jerusalem. When it worships through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come to Mount Zion, dear brothers and sisters, the heavenly Jerusalem. We ascend the hill of the Lord, coming into the very presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And one day this vision will reach its climax when, as John describes it in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, will descend to earth. And heaven and earth will be one, and God will dwell in our midst forever and ever. Now, before we go on to the next thing here, how, we need to ask, how, how is Micah's vision being realized today? And, and Micah clues us in here. If you take a look at the end of verse 2, he says, it's as the word of the Lord goes out from Jerusalem that the nations are brought in. Now we saw a, a uh, think about the whole structure of the book of Acts in the, in the New Testament. As the people of God are transitioning out of the old covenant era into the new. And Acts is deliberately telling you that Micah's prophecy was coming true in the early church. As the word of the Lord, the word of the gospel, the teaching of Jesus Christ went from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And friends, it's the same today. It's as the church carries out the great commission that the Lord Jesus has given to us, that the word of the Lord goes out and the nations are brought in. So the great commission Jesus gave the church is the means by which Micah's vision is being realized in these latter days. Now that has enormous significance for us, doesn't it? It tells us that as a community of believers, we are not simply here to be turned in on ourselves, just focused on ourselves. Part of the reason God has gathered us here through the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we might together be instruments of getting the word of the Lord out in order that we might speak to others of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, so that through the word of the Lord going out, the nations are brought in. So what Micah is describing here has to do with the DNA of the church, what we are to be about today as the people of God. And so this is a latter days vision. It is an international vision. And then thirdly, notice that it's also a transformational vision. It's a vision of lives being changed for the good. Okay, so what is the result of people flocking to Jerusalem to go to the temple? What happens? Well, Micah gives you this beautiful description of lives changed. Micah's vision includes a description of how people are changed when they come to know and worship and serve the God of Jacob. He describes here the impact of the gospel on individuals, and even families, and even communities, and yes, even nations affected by the word of the Lord going out 
into the world. And at the very least, we have to say that one of the things this is communicating to us is that the knowledge of God is never a merely intellectual thing. The knowledge of God was never meant to be a merely intellectual thing. It profoundly affects the way people live. And Micah here paints a picture of life lived under the reign of Jesus Christ. Yes, a reality that will only be fully realized after his second coming. But the church, we need to understand, set a step aside here for a minute. We could do a whole, we need to do a Sunday school series on the nature of biblical prophecy. Because if you're like me, growing up, you grew up in a tradition that taught you to, you know, read prophecy in the Old Testament and find its literal historical fulfillment. And then that prophecy was done. That it was fulfilled. Now, there's, there's some biblical prophecy where there is, uh, you know, one historical fulfillment. But very often, biblical prophecies are establishing a pattern in redemptive history that will reach its fullness and climax at the return of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the case as we're reading Micah chapter 4. We need to have that in our thinking if we're going to understand the way Micah's prophecy works today. So he's helping us understand that while we won't see the, the full reality of what Micah describes here until the consummation, that nevertheless, those who have come under the mastery of the Prince of Peace become a people who live at peace. They are a people in whom you know, peace takes up its abode in the, in the lives of people who come to know the God of Jacob. Don't you love the way he describes this? You know, weapons of war become instead instruments of productivity. Weapons that you would have at one point used to slay your enemies now becomes an instrument of agriculture and production. Now, Micah is not issuing here a political agenda for civil governments in this present age. He isn't calling for international disarmament, as some read this passage. In this world, we need to understand this, the state is God's instrument for upholding justice. And sometimes that requires the power of the sword. And as long as we live in a world of sin, where nations resist the peace of Jesus Christ, then nations must continue to live according to this order of life in a fallen world. But you see, Micah is saying individuals who know God in Christ know peace with God and they begin to seek to live at peace with others. And the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a kingdom with citizens who are peacemakers in this world. Knowing God, Micah is saying, knowing God makes a real difference. Knowing God makes you a good neighbor. And one day, those who belong to his kingdom will experience the everlasting peace that we have just a glimpse of here. There will never again be a need for weapons of war. And notice here, instead of a burning desire for more, remember what Micah was dealing with in the earlier chapters. God's people were characterized by um, covetousness, by greed, by this constant 
pursuit of more, this desire to consume and get more for oneself, even if it meant hurting the little guy. It's discontentment. Now what's the picture that Micah describes? Instead of this burning desire for more, everyone will sit under his own vine and fig tree in contentment. You see the contrast that Micah is painting here? The people of God who were covetous, always scheming about how to get more. Now Micah depicts a people fully satisfied in the Lord's provision, content with their daily bread and a portion of the good things of this life, trusting in their faithful God to both provide and to protect. And for sure, again, the full realization of the vision awaits. But Micah is saying that when people come to know God and the gospel gets a hold of their hearts and lives, that people and homes and communities and yes, even nations are affected this side of the new heaven and new earth. The gospel makes people good neighbors. It transforms us into a people whose concerns begin to reflect the concerns of the Lord God himself. Concerns for justice. Concerns for mercy. Concern to to live at peace with everyone, as Paul puts it, as, as, as far as it depends upon us. We become content and satisfied with the Lord's provision and care in our lives. But again, how does this How does this come about? How are lives changed this way? We've already seen that by the word of the Lord going out, the people are being gathered in, but then how are they they changed and transformed? Go back to verse 2 and see what Micah says. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Now, the he here is the Lord God himself. So don't miss what Micah is saying. He is saying that the Lord himself will be our teacher. And this transformation is therefore brought about as the peoples of the world come to Mount Zion to sit under the teaching of the Lord. So what does this mean then for the ministry of the word of God in the context of the local assembly of the church? A whole lot, doesn't it? It's the difference between me teaching you and God teaching you. See, if it's only me, then my words very likely are going to do very, very little, if not nothing at all, in terms of affecting and changing your life. Maybe, maybe you'll think it's uh, interesting or fascinating or dull and boring Uh, incredibly tedious, I don't know, you can add whatever adjective you want, but at the end of the day, it won't change you. Why is that? Because I can't get into your heart. I can't get inside of you to change your heart, but God can. God can do that. And that's the difference. You see, when God is in the midst of his people, teaching them his word in the power of the spirit folks don't just walk away after a sermon saying my 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 that was a wonderful message how i enjoyed that that was so interesting i never thought about that before no instead they start thinking differently 
They start desiring different things. They start making different decisions on the basis of what the Lord is teaching them. And so when the sermon is altogether forgotten, well, the Word of God is still doing its work. Still doing its work in the lives of God's people. That, my friends, is the difference. When God is teaching us, He gets a hold of our hearts. He gets a hold of our affections. He transforms our desires. He works to renew our wills. And He changes lives. He really does it. And and this isn't just wishful thinking, dear friends. This is the promise of God given in the new covenant. What is the promise that God gave to us in the new covenant? Among other things, one of the things that he promised is that he is going to, by his spirit, etch his word upon our hearts. He is going to write his instruction upon the hearts of his people so that they walk in his ways. So that they walk in his paths. And so it's an international vision. It's it's also a vision of transformation. Micah sees people whose lives have been changed. And notice, and we need to see, that the vision is of people who delight to walk in God's ways. God's law is not a burden to them. God's word will not be seen as, you know, cramping my style. (laughs) I won't say to myself, man, if, if I could just do my own thing, I could have such a better life right now. No, God writes his law on our hearts by his spirit, and he will teach us his ways so that we walk in his, his paths rejoicing along the way. And so Micah's vision is a latter day's vision that's international and transformational. And then finally and, and briefly here, it's a God-exalting vision. We might try to come back at another point and look at some other uh, things in chapter 4, the second half of chapter 4, to to take a look at some of the other things. But for now, just once again ask, how how is God going to do this? How is this grand vision worked out in history? And I think, again, I I gave you a quote on the front of your bulletins that gives you, I think, a, a grid for understanding the multi-layered nature of this prophecy. But let's try, to, let's try to understand this together with just a couple minutes that we have left. This, as, as Micah paints this picture that was to come for these people after exile, he's already told them they're going into exile, he mentions a remnant who, in verse 5, continue to walk in the name of the Lord, And he tells them how they are going to reach this blessing where these things will happen. In verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord God will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so the first thing God is going to do to... Uh, this remnant people who have gone into exile as an exercise of God's disciplining judgment is, is he's going to 
He's going to gather them. Saying, I'm not going to forget you. I won't leave you there. One day I'm going to come for you and I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back home. He's not lost sight of them. He's giving them that promise and assurance. But notice the language he uses. I will gather you. I will gather the lame. (laughs) Think about that picture. You know, if you're helping a lame person travel home from exile, what is the image in your mind? It's, it's, uh, well, if it's a lame person, you've got to to carry the weight. You've got to put your arm underneath them and carry them the distance to bring them all the way home. And this is the image that Micah is using to describe what God is going to do for his people. When you think, too, about what's the experience of, of being in exile, well, it's the experience of being far away from home, of being in a strange land where you are an outsider. And because you are an outsider, because you are distant from, uh, different from the people that you live with and around, you may experience hardship. Life isn't going to be easy. It's going to be difficult for the people of God who are, who are living in exile. But God is promising, I will gather you together. I will bring you back from exile to Jerusalem. Now here's what I want you to do. Think about Micah's prophecy, I hope this is helpful, as a three-layered cake. Okay? Think about Micah's prophecy as a, as a three-layered cake for a minute. What I've just been describing, that's, that's layer one. Right? Israel's return from exile in the Old Testament period, brought back by God to rebuild Jerusalem and reconstruct the temple on Mount Zion. But you see, that wasn't, that wasn't the end goal. That wasn't God's bigger plan. It was a picture. There's a second layer where we can say now this prophecy is being fulfilled right now in the church of Jesus Christ, as the word of the Lord goes out from the church and the nations are coming together to worship at Mount Zion. But guess what? That's only layer two. So there's layer one, there's layer two, but we can still say, yeah, you know, I've tasted the cake and it's yummy, but hold on because there is more yet to come. It really isn't over. You haven't had it all until you've had the third layer that this prophecy will be fully enjoyed. And so one of the things that Micah is communicating to us, dear brothers and sisters, is that there is more to come for the people of God. And one of the ways we, we, we ought to learn to think about ourselves in this present age is that the church is a community of lame exiles waiting for God to bring us home one day. And we have the assurance here that he will do it. He will reign over us forevermore in a world of perfect peace and justice and prosperity. And as long as there is more yet to come, as long as the word of the Lord continues to to go out so that the nations are gathered in, that means, dear friends, that there is still a chance for you. That means that the ship has not yet sailed. So let me, let, me, let me urge you to consider here, in light of Micah's prophecy, 
to come down off of your little mound and turn away from those vain idols that you have constructed in your heart and begin to make the pilgrimage to Mount Zion and and say to others, let me come with you and ascend the hill of the Lord to worship the God of Jacob, for I have come to see that he made me, that I owe everything to him, and that he has given his one and only son, that I might have forgiveness, that I might be reconciled, that I might stand in the assembly of the righteous and bow the knee with joy and gladness to the mastery of King Jesus, the King of glory and of grace. Pardon me mixing my my metaphors this morning, but dear friends, as long as the word is continuing to go out, the ship has not yet sailed. And I want to urge you to get on. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the riches of your word and how Micah speaks of these wonderful gospel realities that you are fulfilling right now and and one day will bring uh, to their fullness. In the meantime, keep keep us faithful as a people to getting the word of the Lord out so that the nations might be gathered in as your spirit works. And We pray that you would give us a renewed and deepened appreciation of of what really is going on as we come together as a church and gather by faith in the Spirit at the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, Lord, fill us with wonder, love, and praise, all for Jesus' sake. Amen.